Good morning, brothers and sisters. So good to be with you this morning to sing together, to pray together, to listen to God's Word uh, read together, and now to uh, listen to hear what God has to teach us in His Word this morning. Uh, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Uh, Mark 14, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 25 this morning. And if you uh, are using the little Bibles underneath the chairs that we provide, you can find our sermon passage on page 850. Uh, and let me just say, if you are uh, visiting and you don't have a Bible that you can read on your own at home, then feel free to just take one of the black Bibles underneath the chairs as a gift from us to you. Uh, you don't need to give us anything for it. Uh, we believe that God has spoken to us by His Word, that it is truthful and without error in everything that it intends to communicate. Uh, that is authoritative for our lives. So there is nothing more important, we think, than that you would have your own copy of God's Word to read uh, at home. Uh, so please take one if you need it. Uh, if you were with us last week, then you'll remember that the first 11 verses of chapter, of chapter 14 tell us about the plot of the chief priests and scribes to arrest and kill Jesus. And Mark even explains the way that they get to Jesus that one of his 12 disciples, Judas, goes to the chief priests in order to betray him to them for the promise of money. The story of Mark has been just increasing in tension uh, as we have studied passage by passage, uh, much like a long, drawn-out note of suspense that is increasing in volume uh, in a movie. So the narrative tension has been rising as we get closer and closer to Christ's death. Uh, Mark still, though, has more to tell us about Jesus' final night with his disciples. Our passage this morning covers the very last meal that Jesus shares with his disciples, that's sometimes referred to as the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. And as we can expect from Jesus, the time with his disciples is not wasted. He continues to teach them about his role as the Messiah and his purpose with them on earth as the hour of his arrest quickly approaches. Let's read our text together now and see how the story unfolds. Mark 14, verses 12 through 25. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? For he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed." It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the, new, of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Much of this passage will likely be familiar to you since we rehearse it monthly here at FBC. Uh, And no, I don't preach on this passage every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, This was just the way the preaching schedule worked out. Uh, But anytime you come to a really well-known passage or a passage that is referred to often, that you're used to hearing, there's always a danger that you'll go deaf to its significance and its meaning. There's a number of major themes in this passage that we could expound the meaning of, but I think the big picture that we see from this passage is this. The supper predicts and proclaims the meaning of Christ's death so that we would remember his promises to us. The supper predicts and proclaims the meaning of Christ's death so that we would remember his promises to us. Because of the passage falls neatly into three paragraphs, at least in the ESV Bibles that I'm preaching from, we're just going to take each paragraph one at a time and observe one thing from each. So in verses 12 through 16, that first paragraph, there is preparation. In verses 17 through 22, there is prediction. And in verses 23 through 25, there is promise. Uh, My prayer is that as we look over each of these activities, you'll be amazed at the way God sovereignly orchestrated all things to bring about salvation for his people, and that your appreciation and your reverence for the Lord's Supper will grow deeper because of it. So first, we see preparation happening in verses 12 through 16, preparation. Uh, I use that title not just because it rhymes with the other ones. It's nice when it does. Hopefully, it's easier to remember. But I use preparation because the word prepare or preparation is mentioned three times in this short paragraph. What is it they're preparing for? They're preparing for the Passover meal, uh, which we read about earlier in the service. Uh, The meal of the Passover uh, was the reason that so many pilgrims were coming into Jerusalem during this time of year, including Jesus and his disciples. Uh, Why was that such an important celebration, you might wonder? Well, the reason is because it told of the greatest deliverance in the history of Israel as a people. It was the very act of God bringing them out of slavery from Egypt and revealing himself to them, making them a people. Specifically, it celebrates the substitution God provided for them the night he came through Egypt to kill all the firstborn children of the land. Uh, The Hebrews instead... We're given instructions to take a little lamb, a year old, without blemish, and to sacrifice it, to eat of the meat, and then spread its blood across the doorposts of their homes to cover from the judgment coming. And as the Lord went through Egypt, he would pass over the homes with the blood covering them because blood was already spilled in place of the firstborn. They were also instructed to eat some of the meat with unleavened bread uh, that week, as we read about earlier as well. And it was through this great act of judgment and salvation that Pharaoh released the Hebrews, and then every year after they celebrated this event with a great meal, 
Uh, much like Americans, we celebrate Thanksgiving with a big feast. Usually it's a family type of meal. Uh, for Israel, it was Passover. Uh, this was the yearly celebration that they had around the table. The Jews celebrated God's deliverance through the sacrifice of Passover. Jesus, in our passage, when they're preparing for the Passover, sends out two disciples on a mission to get a room ready. And we know from Luke that these two disciples are Peter and John that go out. And the instructions that he gives them are, I think it's okay to say, a bit strange. They're a little bit maybe vague. He tells them to go into the city and look for a man carrying a jar of water. Uh, which, if I was Peter or John, I might say... Are there any other details you could give us? Any monuments this might be near or buildings specifically? Uh, anything like that would be useful, Jesus. Uh, but as it turns out, it wasn't actually all that common for men to be carrying a jar of water. That was just typically something that women did in the household, which likely means that this, this person would have been a servant of a house, which is why uh, he has them take him to the, his master's house and ask him about the guest room upstairs. Uh, these kinds of arrangements had to be made because the Passover meal had to be celebrated within the walls of Jerusalem. And because of the kind of influx of pilgrims, the city's infrastructure just wasn't built uh, like cities are today that can host large events like the Olympics. They didn't have the restaurant space. So if you were a resident uh, in Jerusalem, you were expected to open up your home to travelers as well. Well, whether or not Jesus uh, prearranged a room or he just uh, knew that this particular room was available. I think he prearranged it uh, based on the Gospel of John tells us he goes to Jerusalem multiple times. Uh, and so likely that's the case. But even still, we see from Jesus a kind of divine knowledge that he exhibits in instructing his disciples to find someone walking on a street in the busyness of Passover week carrying a jar of water, uh, which would still not be so obvious, I think, even though it's a male. Uh, did you notice that this instruction is just like when he came into the city? He instructs his disciples to go out and secure a donkey for him to ride in on. And just think about the parallels for a minute. In both cases, he sends two disciples. In both cases, he gives somewhat vague instructions. And then in both, the disciples are basically just told to inform the person that Jesus has a need. But this arrangement and Jesus' precise knowledge of how things will go is just one small example of what we've seen all across the book of Mark. It's an example of Jesus' divine foreknowledge, the way he simply follows the plan for his life. At a surface level, this paragraph seems like it's just uh, details about the preparation for the meal that evening. But on a much grander scale, Mark is showing us the way every step of Jesus' life was prepared and how everything went according to his plan. Jesus has divine awareness, we might say, of not only the major events like his death and resurrection, but even the most minute details like what the man would be holding when Peter and John found him on the street. With this being his final meal with the disciples and the institution of the Lord's Supper itself, Jesus will use the time both to predict and to explain the meaning of his impending death in a way that saints throughout eternity will learn from and remember regularly, including us 
each month that we partake. So what can we say about this first paragraph and how to apply this preparation to our lives? First, trust God, even when you can't see what he's doing in your life. He has a plan. Suffering has a purpose. God worked through sufferings, in fact, even arranged the suffering of his own son, Jesus, in order to bring about salvation to the nations. And if God works in the sufferings of Jesus, he's working through the sufferings of our lives each step of the way as well. We can often be like the disciples, uh, unaware of what God has prearranged for us, uh, but it takes faith to trust that his plans are best for us. Similarly, don't fear, knowing nothing happens outside of God's control. Uh, kids especially, I'm thinking about you when I make this, uh, this application about not fearing because we don't really know what's going to happen with your life. Uh, but God does. And so we can trust that his plans are good for you. Jesus still has the disciples go and meet the man carrying the water to get things ready. And so you don't have to be afraid about what will happen in life because you know that God will ultimately work things out for good from the small details to the large ones. Have confidence in God's plan for your life. Notice what the disciples found when they obeyed Jesus and followed his command. It says they found it just as he had told them. Uh, friends, that's what our experience is going to be at the end of time when our faith becomes sight, that everything he promised to us will have occurred just as he has told us, just as he said. Sometimes in life it's hard to believe God's promises, uh, but he does not change. Only we do, or our circumstances do. Uh, finally, make preparations in life. Uh, you know, it's easy to talk about God's sovereignty on a large scale and forget that God always works in tandem with human responsibility as well. Jesus could have prearranged this room without using his disciples. Uh, but friends, knowing God is sovereign should ultimately cause us to take more responsibility and make wise preparations in our own life as well. That's point one, preparation. Point two, prediction. Prediction in verses 17 through 21. The evening approaches, the room has been prepared, and so the disciples are reclining at table. Uh, this means that they're around the table uh, reclining. They didn't eat in upright chairs like at a restaurant. Uh, so you may be familiar with da Vinci's famous painting, uh, The Last Supper. Uh, it's the number two, I think, most famous painting in the world next to the Mona Lisa. Uh, and there's two big problems with it. One is the chairs they're sitting in look like these chairs that you're sitting in, uh, when in fact what Jesus and his disciples used were probably more something like lounge chairs that you lay on your side, prop yourself up with your elbow, and then eat with the other hand. Uh, so that's one problem. The other problem, obviously, is that they're all facing like as if someone is taking a picture of them. Uh, and that's just not how you had a, a family meal. But that's why the Bible says that Jesus is reclining at table or reclining with sinners and tax collectors. That's just the way that they, the posture they took when they had a great meal. It's interesting to note that Mark hardly tells us anything about the dinner itself. Uh, and I think that's because he wants us to primarily think about what is said at the table. He jumps right into the dialogue of Jesus. 
who says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Whoa. Easy, Jesus. Not exactly the most friendly conversation that you would say among family and friends around a meal. One of you will betray me tonight. Try that one at the next Thanksgiving. See how it goes. Jesus has already predicted his death, but this time, uh, rather than mentioning his enemies, like the religious leaders or the scribes or wicked men, this time, here at the table, he looks around and says, one of you. It's just another example of Jesus having this divine foreknowledge of something before it occurs. He goes even further to explain in verse 20, it's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Uh, I read that many years ago and was confused because I thought he was describing the action as it was happening. And I just thought, like, why don't they all just look around the room and see Judas, who's literally dipping the bread and eating it, and just get him right there, prevent it all from happening. Uh, but that's not really what it means. He's just simply saying someone who's sharing this meal with me. It would have it been a way to specifically say one of his 12 disciples uh, because that room would have been full of also probably women and children that traveled along with him, uh, other of his followers, not just his 12 disciples. The room probably would have been full of people. Uh, but this describes specifically one of his disciples to make it extra clear. Those who are to be most loyal to him from among which one of them would betray him. And Jesus isn't just declaring these things out of nowhere. Look at verse 21. He says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus is simply just revealing to them what had been written about the Son of Man in times past. Uh, Many have read this passage and think that Uh, Jesus is referring to a particular verse in the Psalms. Uh, It's Psalm 41, verse 9, specifically a psalm of David, in which David says, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. David, who was a prefigure of Christ, describing those close to him who turned against him. And now Jesus refers to one sharing bread, at the very table, who will betray him. It's amazing to think that even in the suffering of David's life, the Spirit inspires him to write a psalm that would eventually then prophesy about Christ's own betrayal years and years later. Notice the response of the disciples when Jesus says these things. Verse 19, They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? You could just feel the shock and the grief in the room. But it's interesting that each one of the disciples, when you think about it, even considered that it might actually be a possibility that one of them would betray him. Uh, Meaning, while they are sincerely shocked, they search their own souls to consider whether or not that was something that they could do. And the answer that they come up with is inconclusive. So they have to ask Jesus, is it I? I would have expected them to start turning on each other immediately. It it must be Judas. He's been stealing from the purse. We know it. 
Perhaps it's the sons of Zebedee. They're so passionate. They, they only care about their own glory. They said they wanted to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. Let's get them now. But immediately, they consider that it could be one of them. And I think part of the reason is just the conviction of their own sin within their hearts. It is really only one of the twelve that betrays Jesus. And Judas, who actually hands him over to the authorities for money. But as we'll see in the coming uh, weeks, the disciples don't do Jesus a whole lot better. Peter, we know from John's gospel, cuts the ear off of a soldier when they come to arrest him. But then he goes on to deny his Lord three times. When Jesus is taken, his disciples scatter. They flee. They may not have all betrayed him, but they did all fail him. And friends, the reality is, if we were one of his disciples, we would do the same. They can look within themselves, each one of them, one by one, because they know that they are capable of sin. And that's one of the reasons why we should do the same every time we approach the Lord's Supper. We should look inside ourselves to confess regularly the sin of our own lives. One of the reasons I think Jesus made this prediction is in order to give them confidence in his control over all things later on. But it also serves the purpose of stirring up self-reflection before taking the bread and the cup. That's one of the reasons we celebrate the Lord's Supper by uh, beginning by confessing our sins, typically, together. And then reciting the church covenant to remind ourselves what we have been called to. But part of the beauty of the Lord's Supper is recognizing that the dinner represents Christ doing what we could not do ourselves, what we needed him to do in order to be saved. It's interesting to think about how Jesus instituted this meal, uh, the timing of it specifically. He does it the week of Passover, the very celebration of Passover when past deliverance is on all of the minds of the people. But he could have done it after his resurrection too and simply said, hey, when you gather for the Passover now, just recognize that the bread and the cup, they refer to me. I'm the new Passover lamb. But I think one of the reasons he does it before is because uh, almost like an extra emphasis to show that uh, the disciples could not save themselves, that only Christ could do what was about to happen. And he predicts it right in front of them. We can't move on without pointing out the fact that Judas asked this question as well, still partaking of the meal. We always begin with a warning before we take of the elements because of the Apostle Paul, what he says in 1 Corinthians. But think about Judas, rather, eating this meal. In unrepentant sin, laying dormant in his heart. Oh, friends, beware of presuming on the grace of God or treating the elements as if they have some kind of magical power to cleanse you. Eating the the little wafer that we provide or drinking the juice to symbolize these things does not change our standing before God. It does not cleanse us. It only points to the thing that can, Christ himself and his death on the cross. Look at the severity of what Jesus says about his betrayer in verse 21. He says it would have been better 
for that man if he had not been born. It's a terrifying judgment. Judas is not given a break because God used his betrayal to deliver the Son of Man over. God's control over all things does not remove our responsibility to make choices in the world. Here, as in everywhere else, God uses the desires and the will of mankind to carry out his plan. And let me also just add a word of hope to those who feel their despair the despair of sin when taking the meal. Consider the grace of Christ, who forgave the sin of everyone in that room except for one man. Though the disciples all fail him at certain points, it's his very body and blood that restore them to a forgiven state afterwards. And it's the same for us. Born into sin, in rebellion against him, and yet because of this very sacrifice, our sins can be washed clean. And we can be saved. Uh, Friend, if you are new to Christianity, know that taking this meal does not guarantee salvation. Only trusting in Christ does. The meal is simply to remind you to continue to trust in Christ. Two points of application from this paragraph. First, Live your life according to the written word of God, as Jesus did. Uh, Notice Jesus says the Son of Man does what is written of him. And it's a little different because Scripture really does uh, speak and point to Jesus. But if he lived his life according to the Scriptures, then friends, so should we. Uh, Very practically, do you consider what God's word has to say before making a decision in life? Do you search the scriptures before pointing out the sin in someone else's life? Do you live in a way that assumes God's word universally applies to all people in all places throughout all time? Or is your life or your specific situation the one exception? I've been helped just to ask uh, the simple question when I'm facing a difficult decision. What does Scripture have to contribute to this situation that I'm in? What principles or truths can I uh, apply? And if you can't think of any yourself, uh, then let me just encourage you to go to a mature brother or sister in Christ, uh, someone who's godly, who knows their Bible well, and just consider asking them what they think the Bible has to say about your situation. You might be surprised at the things that uh, they come up with to help you. Second point of application, take the Lord's Supper seriously. It's not just a thing that we do because we've always done it, but a family meal at the very center of our identity as Christians. Uh, Prepare your heart for it each month. Self-examine your life and your relationships before taking it and consider how heinous our sin must be for the Son of Man himself to shed his own blood to forgive us. Consider verse 21, and the seriousness of taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Point three, promise. Verses 22 through 25, promise. One thing to mention to you is that for us reading this passage, this seems like the shortest meal ever. (laughs) It seems like it lasts about as long as it takes us to uh, rehearse uh, when we partake of the Lord's Supper 
but this would have been an hours-long evening uh, full of fellowship uh, and most likely laughter. In John's Gospel, he records a lot of Jesus' teaching and speeches, and you'll find that that whole segment spans from chapters 14 through 17 in John's Gospel. Jesus washes their feet in this room. He gives them a new command to love one another. He says he's the way, the truth, and the life. He promises the Holy Spirit. He says he's the vine. He continues to teach them about uh, what will happen, and then he has that great prayer in John 17. All that appears to happen in the same meal, and Mark covers it in three short paragraphs, which is typical of Mark. (laughs) Very abridged. He gets right to the point. And as I stated earlier, I think Mark is concerned with showing us who Jesus is and now why he came. So he records what Jesus says specifically about his body and his blood. So first, his body, he takes the bread. He blesses it, hands it out, saying, this is my body. And his blessing would have just been a a common or standard Hebrew blessing, thanking God for uh, the uh, deliverance, thanking God for the provision of food. But because this is the Passover meal, the bread has the special significance of the deliverance from bondage in Egypt. So Jesus taking that bread that refers to deliverance and then breaking it is like saying, I am the new Passover bread. Instead of thinking about past deliverance from Egypt, from now on when you break this bread, think of my body that will be broken for you and the new exodus that will occur through my sacrificial death. In this way, Jesus breaking the bread acts as another kind of prediction about what is coming, namely that his body will be broken. I think that's the simple symbolism of the bread. The purpose of the bread is just to show that Jesus' body will be broken for them. God planned these events so that they would happen during Passover week when the entire city was thinking about this past deliverance. That's the kind of mindset that Jesus is speaking to. And then after that, Jesus takes the cup of wine. And after giving thanks, he hands it out for them all to drink together. And once they do, he says those important words, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And similar to the bread, it is chock full of meaning and rich historical meaning. First, because he uses the word covenant. (laughs) which typically referred to the Mosaic Covenant, uh, the one God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. And it's the very covenant that was confirmed in Exodus 24. Listen to the role of the blood in this passage as I read it. This is Exodus 24, verses 4 through 8. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel, And he sent young men of the people of Israel who burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This act is an even clearer picture of what the Passover lamb communicates 
that blood must be spilled and then covering those who would be cleansed by it before God. It's not their righteous deeds or their positive attitude that saves them. It's the blood of sacrifice. And Jesus now proclaims blood will be poured out for a new and better sacrifice, inaugurating the new covenant long awaited for ever since the prophet Jeremiah spoke of it in Jeremiah 31. If you keep reading Exodus 24 a few verses later, you'll find that Moses and the leaders go up to the mountain right after that in verse 11. And there it says they ate and drank. The old covenant was confirmed with sacrificial blood and a meal, and now the new covenant similarly is inaugurated with sacrificial blood and a meal. If the breaking of bread portrayed Christ's body, then the drinking of wine portrayed atonement that would occur in Christ's sacrifice. So the bread predicts Christ's death, the blood interprets it for us. It makes Christ's death specifically for atoning of our sins. Jesus didn't just go to the cross as an example for us, as some say. He wasn't just a good guy with a positive message that had an unfortunate ending. Jesus was the Messiah written about in the Old Testament who brought deliverance, salvation for his people. His death was no accident, but the very mechanism by which sinners are saved, ransomed. Ransom is paid with his blood and we are cleansed. That reminds me of that great hymn, Nothing But the Blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Look again at verse 24. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For many. And Matthew even includes after that, for the forgiveness of sins. But what does Jesus mean when he says for many? It brings to mind the key verse of the book, Mark 10, 45, which says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' words here imply that his death is sufficient not only for those in the room, but for the many that would hear the gospel and respond to it throughout all history. There are many more, including Mark's original audience and us here today in the audience, that can take comfort knowing Christ's blood was poured out for the many. We are a part of that many. That phrase about his Blood being poured out for the, men, for the many harkens back to Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Verses 11 and 12, they say, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong or the numerous, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus accomplished all of this according to the plan of the Father. Friends, how can we apply these things to our lives today? First, when you take the Lord's Supper, 
in just a little bit. Look around the room. Communion is a meal of fellowship. It is not an individual uh, part of worship. It is a meal that is to be taken in community. A group of people who share the same understanding of what Christ's blood means. That Christ's blood covers our sins and has made us brothers and sisters together. If you're here visiting and you would not call yourself a Christian, uh, first, I'm so glad you're here. Please know that you're welcome anytime. There's nowhere else we would love for you to be on a Sunday morning than uh, with us, uh, hearing from God's Word. And let me just use this opportunity to encourage you. Why not join the many here talked about in these verses? When we partake the supper after our next song, think deeply about the sacrifice of Jesus about the forgiveness made possible for anyone who believes in him and consider giving your life over to him today in faith. The stage has been set, Passover prepared, Christ's death predicted, and a new covenant of his blood, all to teach his disciples that getting betrayed and handed over to wicked men is a necessity because Christ's death is for us. It reveals our dependence on him as well as the institution of the new covenant itself, a new community of people rescued from the bondage of our sin. As I said, the Lord's Supper is not a quick event. It took many hours. Uh, and there was actually a ritual that we don't hear about very often uh, for Israel specifically, historically. And throughout the dinner, there was a kind of liturgy now, we only read about one cup that's passed, but really there were four cups, uh, four stages of the meal. The first cup was drunk uh, before the traditional eating of the meal. And when it was presented, the youngest in the room would ask the question, much like we read earlier today in the service, why do we eat these foods on this night? And then the host of the meal, usually the father, or in this case, Jesus, would explain uh, the story of the Exodus the group would then sing Psalms 113 to 115, Psalms of praises. Then there would be a second cup passed out. And the second cup passed just before the meal itself, after which the bread would be presented in remembrance of their forefathers. And uh, along with the bread would be this statement, this is the bread of affliction with our, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. And the bread was normally eaten in silence. Uh, the fellowship stops. But when Jesus hosts the meal, he breaks that silence to give that interpretive comment. This is my body. Effectively claiming himself to be the Passover bread. After the eating is finished, the third cup was presented by the hosts. And then after uh, that they would sing Psalms 116 to 118, and then the meal would conclude with the fourth cup. But when Jesus presented the third cup, he added the ritual, he added to the ritual language, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Just as the blood of the lamb covered many, so his blood would cover many. Drinking in remembrance, therefore, not only signals the purpose of Christ's death, but also the community of those who believed him, who were passed over because of it. But notice that Jesus concludes the meal with his amazing statement. And in doing so, he cuts the ritual short. 
instead of passing out a fourth cup, he says in verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The communion shared by believers partaking in the Lord's Supper is extended from its institution all the way until the final banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we all look forward to one day. The fellowship and union of all believers through the body and the blood of Jesus therefore continues each time we take it in remembrance of Him as we look forward to the day Christ promised when we drink of that fourth cup with Him in the kingdom of God. In many ways, the bread and cup both promise to us the sacrifice made on our behalf. They promise the forgiveness of Christ as a substitute. But this supper we celebrate each each month, sometimes referred to as the Last Supper, is really the First Supper. When we celebrate it, we rehearse Christ's promise to us that the true Last Supper will be the banquet in heaven. So friends, the supper predicts and proclaims the meaning of Christ's death so that we would remember his promises to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that you have prepared a sacrifice for us like the ram in the bush. Lord, we thank you for your son, the true lamb of God that you provided for the true Passover, the one that the original Passover just pointed to so that we could have the confidence that if the precious blood of Jesus was spilled for us, he will surely grant us all things. Lord, we pray you would soften our hearts as we partake of the meal. And thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.